All right, everybody, welcome to episode 37, Repairing the Heart. I am Dr. Christopher Pisano. He is Dr. Yosef Gannett, and this is the Stem Cell Podcast. What's going on, Yos? Hey, how's it going, surviving here after this big blizzard uh, that we oh, just yeah, got? Man. Uh, how you doing upstate over there? Fresh off the dud of a storm that we got. <laughs> yeah, I know. I couldn't even go to work yesterday because all the trains were closed. So, well, not closed, but just not running on a regular schedule at all, actually, until the late afternoon. So uh, that was it was annoying. it was weird. The morning I woke up here Tuesday and the roads were clear, uh, and then I went into work, and then it proceeded to snow the most. That at that point, that's when we got our snow. So I ended up having to go home a little bit early. They got it all messed up. Uh, and Yosef and I will rant about this a little bit later on in the show, but um, we're, do- we're talking about the heart today, the vasculature. We have uh, a great guest, Dr. Christine Mummery uh, from the Netherlands, uh, uh, and uh, she's going to tell us about her work using stem cells uh, as a way to create heart and vasculature, you know, artery veins, things like this, uh, for for you know therapeutic you know the the one that comes to mind obviously is heart attack or myocardial infarction but obviously there's a lot of others so uh we'll talk to her about that right you know she's also the editor-in-chief of stem cell reports uh, the which is the official journal of isscr so uh we can uh, talk to her about both her hats there. Yeah, we've definitely uh, quoted like in the roundups uh, a lot of articles from that journal. So uh, it's good to have the editor in chief. I don't know how uh, she has any time to do both have a lab and be an editor in chief. It, it's it. Most of these journals have like people who are that's not their only job. They're that's also their, heads yeah, that's of labs. The, yeah, yeah, exactly, so that's and that's their job. I know. I don't know. We'll, we'll talk to her about it. We'll talk to her how about the journal is doing because it's a relatively new journal. I, 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 like you said, we talk about a lot of them on the show. I read them. I think they're great. I think it's a good format. We'll talk to her about kind of why why the the journal was made so or, or created. Um, all right. So we are the Stem Cell Podcast. Everybody knows that we are the official podcast of the International Society for Stem Cell Research, the ISSCR. Um, Joseph and I booked our flights for Sweden. Yes. Looking forward. We to are Stockholm. going. We actually, Yosef and I, and we're going to go to Iceland for a little bit. Check it out. Check out the Northern Lights. Yep. That should be fun before we hop on over to Sweden. Everybody out there, uh, uh, if you're not going to Sweden, you should go. And if you haven't booked it yet, go on and uh, register. Save some money by registering early. Go to ISSCR, org, uh, and you can register for the uh, meeting there. Yosef and I will be on the floor there podcasting. Uh, grabbing people, pulling people aside, and uh, doing some interviews like we did last time, which is a lot of fun. You'll hear like, the latest science from all the big names and uh, smaller names, and they'll, everyone will be there, so you should be there too. Um, let's see. So everybody, everybody listening right now, I need you all to go to stemcellpodcast.com, and I need you to enter your name and email right there on the homepage. We've, we've put a lot of work into trying to make things easier for you guys, and we, we try to – one of the things that's really important on the show is we give you all these papers, right? We do our roundup, and um, it gives you a chance to get a, a, a kind of a Cliff's Notes of what's new, what's what's kind of what we think is cool. And uh, it saves you time. You can just kind of go online and, and you can find it after every episode. But if you, if you enter your email and name in, what we'll do is we'll send you out a newsletter. And the newsletter contains uh, all of the links to the past, like, I don't know, three, four shows. And it, it just comes right into your email. There's no spam. You click on it. You open it up. You can listen to the show. You can click on the links to all the uh, all the papers. It's just... just one way to make your life easier it's it's really cool so 
go on to stemcellpodcast.com and uh and sign up and uh you know we'll take one make, give you one less thing to do in your life we'll try to make it easier for you um let's see yo so, so uh where are we stem cell podcast at gmail.com keep your comments coming in you can go to the website and get your t-shirt if you haven't gotten it yet i'm going to select someone right now for the free t-shirt from our list oh, every boy. time you enter your name and email into that list into on our homepage, you automatically get answered for a free t-shirt all right yo so i'm gonna do drum this here. Roll, the way i'm gonna do roll. it is i'm gonna close my eyes I'm going to scroll up and down a couple times and click. Uh, Hold on. And let's see who I get. Click. All right. This is Julia Etchin at Harvard. Julia, if you're out there, uh, send us an email, stemcellpodcast at gmail.com. And um, give us your address. We'll send you a free T-shirt. It's a really cool shirt. I love my stem cell podcast shirt. (laughs) And size. Yes, and size. Sorry. (laughs) Yes, and size. Um, let's see what else we got to uh, anything else here um, get us on Facebook and Twitter follow us there next gen uh, yeah yeah we'll talk I'm going to talk about that right before my roundup I'm going to talk about that in the in the realm of stem cells um, okay, so, so let's see here um, alright let's go into the roundup let's make sure we get everything done the roundup brought to you by Thermo Fisher where on our last episode we, we interviewed um, uh, Dr. Piper about um, you know what's going on with their collaborations and disease modeling and you know the tools you can get from thermo and life uh to do your disease modeling ips and all that stuff you can go to lifetechnologies.com backslash disease modeling to find out more about that um really helps us as scientists uh develop models by the tools they provide and they're actually doing research in that as well go check that out and with that, we will kick it off. Round up. Yost, my man. You got okay, the Okay, so I'm going to start off with a little bit of good news. Uh, there was a report showing that tiger populations in India are up 30%. So good news. Uh, the conservation uh, efforts in India. So I just want to highlight that. Uh, I don't know if I you like s- tigers, man. Yeah, I like man. I, yeah, I hate it when I see people still believing in tiger paw to cure this and that. It's like, come uh-huh. on, man. Uh Anyhow, so uh, nature. There was a nature study where they made a safeguarded E. coli that can only some survive off of a synthetic amino acid. So I just think this is cool technology and making like uh, designer bacteria and having this safeguard in it so that it can only survive off of a synthetic. 20, you know, there are 20 essential amino acids. This is the 21st. And uh, this bacteria can only survive using uh, this synthetic amino acid. So uh, more to come. That's cool. Yeah. Nice little safeguard there. It's like a kill switch. Um, there was a PLOS genetics study showing that both BPA, bisphenol A, and estradiol, uh, or the birth control hormone, which passes untreated through sewage plants when people flush it down the toilet. Uh, so both BPA and estradiol disrupt sperm production. They found this in mice, uh, that exposure to these two um, hormones can cause sperm production to have poor meiosis and thus die. So uh, bad bad effects of BPA and estradiol, uh, which we've highlighted in the past on this. BPA, man, no bueno. Yeah, uh, there was a neuron study showing that ingesting large amounts of dietary salt causes changes in key brain circuits. Uh, They used uh, rats to show they found a biochemical change in the neurons that release vasopressin into systemic circulation and found uh, 
BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, uh, prevents the inhibition of vasopressin. Do you say vaso or vasopressin releasing neurons? So I uh, say vaso, but vaso. people say vaso. Yeah, tomato, tomato. Yeah, it's like mesoderm, mesoderm. Uh, yeah. So uh, you can find that in neuron. There is a British Journal of Clinical Pharmacology study showing that taking a hormonal contraceptive for at least five years is associated with an increase in developing uh, rare glioma. So uh, some of these GBMs, Ooh. yeah, you know, there's hormonal like estrogen. I think there's the rates of GBM in women are higher, but I have to double check on that. And this may be, you know, talking about that signaling. Um, so using these hormonal contraceptives may have an effect on uh, the rates of uh, glioma So uh, in women. Uh, there was a molecular cell study showing that a protein called CSGC in E. coli uh, inhibits amyloid curly formation inside the cell. So uh, E. coli, like, you know, uh, beta amyloid and Alzheimer's and all these other neurodegenerative diseases, E. coli make a similar amyloid protein called amyloid curly, but it only forms on the outside of the cell and not inside the cell. So, uh, and it helps, uh, the bacteria to anchor onto things like kitchen counters and intestinal walls. So this is a protein target. The fact that it inhibits amyloid formation inside the cell, this could be a target, uh, something that can be exploited for neurodegenerative diseases, uh, these amyloid plaques that form. So using a similar, uh, uh, approach using CSGC also inhibits beta amyloids. So this could be a way of attacking uh, neurodegeneration. Uh, so you could find that in molecular cell. Um, I didn't know that about amyloid uh, formation. I didn't know bacteria. that either. Yeah. So um, New England, there was a New England Journal of Medicine NEDGEM study. Uh, Nedgem. Sh- yeah, showing that people who smoke high-voltage e-cigarettes have greater exposure to formaldehyde than those who keep the voltage low. So sometimes people turn that voltage up to get a more of a, I guess, stronger puff from the e-cigarettes. And that is actually leading to more exposure to this potential carcinogen formaldehyde. So uh, keep that in mind, e-cigarette smokers, keep that voltage low. Uh, there was a journal of applied physics study uh, where they made metal so resistant to water that the droplets of water bounce off of it like basketballs. <laughs> Did you see this video? I can't wait to post this on the website. They used a powerful laser to etch minute micro and nanoscale patterns onto brass, titanium, and plat- platinum. And uh, the... It, this this technique is better than Teflon in that it doesn't wear off over time and it could be applied to things like airplane wings to prevent icing so water just bounces yeah. off and uh, sanitation so if the water can't attach bacteria can't attach and so this may be a new way of keeping things uh, sanitary I want to see that, that sounds cool yeah wait till you see the video, it's pretty cool uh, I don't know if you saw this, there's a measles outbreak in Disneyland yeah, I saw this, that's man. spreading to uh, the Bay Area, and it's mostly unvaccinated people affected so far. But you know, we gotta keep that herd immunity up. And anti-vaxxers are still out there uh, bringing measles back successfully, unfortunately, in 2015. So uh, I don't know if you saw that, but uh, keep keep uh, vaccinating your children, please. MMR does not cause autism. 
Uh, vaccine. No. So uh, there was a nature neuro study using fMRI technology to study the brains of individuals on autism spectrum disorder while they were at rest. They found uh, in the brains of ASD participants uh, showed unique patterns of synchronization. The brains of control volunteers all showed similar connectivity patterns among the volunteers with uh, autism. However, the connectivity patterns uh, vary, uh, were very different in the individual um, and, and unique to different regions of the brain. So the researchers described the non-autism spectrum disorder brains as conformist, quote-unquote, compared to the autism group, which they were uh, referred to as idiosyncratic. So you could find that in uh, Nature Neuro using fMRI to identify autism brains at rest. Uh, so that's a new signature that they're describing. Idiosyncratic signature. I know Idiosyncratic. Know. I like that word. Yeah, there was an oncogenesis study show, uh, showing how prostate cancer cell enzyme called SUV39H1 and histone modification is altered after exposure to sulforaphane, uh, which is a broccoli compound, and. Um, so after exposure to this compound, uh, it usually produces cytotoxicity in prostate cancer cells, and they outline how this happens uh, with all the histone modification uh, that comes with it. And uh, there was a current biology study. I don't know if you saw this. They trained macaques to recognize themselves in the mirror, which brings up, uh, you know, this is one of the tests how they describe consciousness in animals and only a few animals can recognize themselves in the mirror and not like attack them <laughs> their reflection thinking it's another creature so uh basically they uh ch can train this sort of consciousness in the macaques i know that uh i guess uh um dolphins and elephants can do this and chimps but now this this particular species of macaque can although they can't do it natively they can be trained so after 12 to 38 days of training five out of seven monkeys touched an odorless mark applied to their faces when they looked at themselves in the mirror to, you know so they they so i guess five sevenths of macaques can be can learn to recognize themselves and sort of can you imagine just sort of being you know trained into consciousness <laughs> it's it's sort of an intriguing yeah that is kind of interesting you know, before you were trained you were just part of the masses and now you're an individual now you're an individual <laughs> i just thought that was cool and uh yeah i guess i'll end it there and maybe just uh give a shout out to um let's see here there was one other thing i want to to highlight oh uh yes now that it's flu season, there's a morbidity and mortality the uh, weekly report estimating that getting the flu vaccine this season reduces the risk of going to the doctor because of the flu by 23% among people of all ages. So uh, we're in the H3N2 flu season, which is like it's in its peak right now. And uh, this H3N2 is not part of the vaccine. So it's only 23% effective this year. So you still get the flu vaccine, but it's not, you know, it's only 23% effective. Have you gotten the flu this year? 
I have have I gotten the flu? Yeah, yeah. No, I have not. All, and you yeah. know what? I haven't gotten the shot, and I'm totally meant to. I just we just I don't know. I just dropped the ball, and I never did. My son, I give it. You know, the two year old gets it, but well, I haven't gotten it. Have you gotten the flu? I I have not, and I did get the shot. Um, MSK requires it; otherwise, you have to wear a uh, a mask all day. So um, I got it. I mean, whatever, it's fine. Just a little pain in the arm over the next day or two and some mild pain. So I figured if it could keep me away from the flu, even if it's only 23% effective, that I'll, I'll take that. I mean, it's no skin off my back. So it was, no. yeah, I just did it. But I just want to highlight that we are in flu season and this H3N2 is uh, particularly strong this year. So um, I don't know. Be cautious. Watch those hands. And, uh, yeah, washing. I washed. Dude, my hands are a mess. They're all chapped up because I wash them all the <laughs> they're time. Super dry. It's super super dry. All right, man. Thank so you. That's, that's cool. Me. Um, yeah. Let me get into to my papers here. And before I do, uh, Yost mentioned in the beginning, and I wanted to save it right before I go into the stem cell stuff. Uh, so I have the uh, next gen stem cell conference. We talked about it. Um, it is a, uh, a stem cell conference for. Uh, younger scientists, really. It's it's more intimate. It's uh, only max at 150 people. It's in beautiful Saratoga, New York, in the spring in May. Um, we do. Um you, know, you can register, and the registration is not expensive, and there's a discount for grad students. Um, and you, with your registration, you get um, you get a really nice lunch. You get an open bar, a really long open bar. Uh, <laughs> we get uh, a dinner um, with the open bar that night. The next morning, you're getting breakfast. There's a lunch. So you really get taken care of, and it's we got really great speakers. Um you know, it's just a really good environment to have open discussion with younger scientists, people that are still in training, people that have just transitioned to their new labs, um, and we've got some really nice speakers. The registration is now open, so you can go to nextgenstemcell.com. So that's nextgen, G-E-N, stemcell.com, and check out the speakers, uh, and then, you know, check out the agenda and register. You got to register early, you get a discount, and uh, there's limited seating. If you use the code podcast, you're going to get a discount, so make sure you type that in. Nice. Um, so shout out to Mark Tomashima, who helped me uh, organize that. Thanks, Mark. And everybody, register, and we hope to see you there. Yosef and I, oh, I uh, you know, Yosef, I actually made the break a little bit longer to accommodate our Hattie's fried chicken break on Excellent. the first night. Excellent. Because Yosef and I and a bunch of people always go into Saratoga and get us some fried chicken out there, so <laughs> come and join us. All right. So let me get into some of the stem cell stuff. Uh, just when you think it's over, it's not. Uh, Obakata may face criminal charges as Jeez. former colleagues allege she stole stem cells. So now, so now this is the stat crap story. This is now what they're saying is she used embryonic stem cells, or, you know, to to kind of trick the readers into, into showing pluripotency. And now they're saying that she stole them from a lab. She wasn't supposed to have them, and she actually stole them from the research room of uh, Mr. Terahiko Wakayama. Mm. And so now they're launching a criminal investigation, and she could go down for, like, theft. Man, this is just, like, a friggin' mess. <laughs> so not only did she use the wrong cell in her study, but she stole it. So this has just been a disaster. Yeah. So this, this is still ongoing stab story. Um, this was in Science. A one-grant limit NIH Institute puts squeeze on flush investigators. So this is interesting. So this is coming out of uh, the NIH, and they're put, put, really putting a strict one-grant limit on scientists who already have plentiful no-string support. Uh, 
Hmm. And this move could free up at least $6 million or 25 grants for other scientists. So this is from NIGMS, General Medical Sciences. They announced the belt tightening and belt tightening. And they said that, you know, investigators with substantial long-term unrestricted research report now may not only hold, they can only get one grant from NIGMS. And these are people really who have, you know, like Howard Hughes, Mm -hmm. you know, these type of investigators who have these no strings attached boatloads of funding. They can't just go to NIH and just, you know, squeeze up all the grants. Uh, so this is just one of the institutes here trying to limit that to make more money available to the uh, to the uh, more middle class researchers here. Do you think this is a good thing? How do you I think it's a good this? thing. It's you know what it's like. It's like distributing from the wealthy. You know, mm. it's like uh, taxing the rich. It's be uh, you know letting letting putting more little income equality in science. I think that's important. You know, I think. You know, you don't need to keep giving the money to the same people and over and over. You want to diversify your discovery. So I, I, I like it. Anything that puts more money into the system for people to get, I'm good for. Um, this is a research out of the Sanford Burnham. Um, let's see here. This is using stem cells to grow new hair. This is in PLOS One. So they developed a method using human pluripotent stem cells to create new cells capable of initiating human hair growth. Oh. And they're saying that the method is a marked improvement over the current methods that rely on transplanting existing hair follicles from one part of the head to the other. So they say that this is, uh, let's see, Ale- Alexei Ter- Terishk. Was associate professor and associate professor in development and aging at Burnham. He says that our stem cell method provides an unlimited source of cells from the patient for transplantation, and it isn't limited by the availability of existing hair follicles. So, uh, new hair might be around the corner for all you bald guys out there. Let's hope so. That's the billion dollar pill right there, dude. If you go bald, would you would you ever get a hair piece? Uh, <laughs> that's a good question. Probably <laughs> yes. <laughs> Dude, I could totally see you with a hairpiece, like a nice, like like flowing hairpiece or something yeah, like that. Get, I don't get, think I could. I'll get the Bob Marley uh, dreadlock version. If I was to get a hairpiece, I would get an and get an excessive one. Not like I'd rather have a long flowing hairpiece than like a little tiny, like a little little spot cover guy. Yeah, yeah. But uh, hopefully, I won't ever have to deal with that. All right, um, UM. I, I picked this up because I'm a I'm a Miami Hurricane. And this came from UM, University of Miami study, explores how stem cells can help burn victims. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so this is a pair of University of Miami doctors conducted research, which is funded by the Department of Defense, right, by the Army, which makes sense to develop new therapies using donor stem cells to restore tissue and reduce long-term scarring from burns. It says that the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan have produced a class of veterans who have survived but are left with burn-related injuries. It's commonly caused by IEDs. What's an IED there? What do they call it? Improvised explosive device. Oh, thank you. Burns account for 5 to 20% of combat injuries. And in the civilian world, about a half a million patients receive hospital emergency treatment for burns. So um, this is uh, a therapy. They're, they're doing um, mesenchymal stem cells, and they're cultivated in the lab for four to six weeks, stored, frozen, and then they are used in in, in trial. So that's going on at UM. Um I couldn't imagine having that kind of severe burn. I was reading this, Yos, and I don't know if you heard about this. This is from, uh, the title was Parkinson's Stem Cell Trial Approaches. So this is a therapy for Parkinson's disease from uh, the uh, International Stem Cell Corporation in Carlsbad. And is expected to get approving for testing in Australia as soon as February. Wow. So it's a publicly traded company that are growing neural stem cells. And uh, they say they can mature into cells making dopamine, the neurotransmitter deficient in Parkinson's. 
and they plan to implant these cells into in, they plan to implant these cells into the brains of Parkinson's patients, which is kind of weird to me, man, because it's not a differentiated cell they're putting in. It seems like they're putting in the neural stem cells, which we know are very proliferative and can divide, and that could possibly be a bad situation. Um, and so it says, if approved, the trial will be the first of therapy with the company cells derived from unfertilized or parthenogenetic human egg cells. Can you explain everyone what the parthenogenote is, Yos? Yeah, it's kind of like uh, if the, I mean, the technical definition is the polar body doesn't excrete and the egg from the egg. And so it's sort of like you cloning yourself. It happens to some lizards and sharks. It'll happen where basically. Uh, the female that, you know, when the egg, the oocyte matures, uh, the polar body goes away and you're left with half a genome. Uh, whereas this doesn't happen in parthenogenic, uh, lines. The polar body stays and you have a full XX genome, essentially a clone of the egg. Uh, okay. Yeah. 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 Uh, that's, damn, that's like some hardcore, like, uh, bio- biology <laughs> stuff yeah, there. Yeah. It's really like asexual reproduction, yeah, right? Yeah. Basically. There's yeah, no, I mean, male, like you get an no. offspring from an unfertilized egg. And, yeah. and so that this is what, that's where they get their cells from. And, uh, they're choosing Australia to do the trial because it's, Regulatory agency is more interactive than the U.S. Uh, Food and Drug Administration. I don't know what interactive means. Um, I guess they're saying that like it takes a really long time in this FDA, and over there it's quicker. Well, um, that's what uh, Wu Suk Wang went. Even though he, uh, I guess, faked the cloning of the first human, he did create the first parthenogenic line. Yeah, yeah. He and he did clone man's best friend. Even yes, he, he did didn't clone man. So. Um, so let's see. The next year, I, I saw that BPA paper Yost talked about. I'm intrigued by BPA, so I always pull something up. This was in, um, um, let's see here. This was a study. This is promising use of nanodiamonds to kill chemo-resistant cancer stem cells. So there's a hypothesis that the cancer stem cells are relatively, they're refractory to um, kind of chemotherapy, chemo-resistant. Mm-hmm. And so this, this was a research team led by Edward Chow, uh, in Singapore, and he used nanotechnology to repurpose existing chemotherapy drugs as affected agents against chemo-resistant cancer stem cells. So basically what they did was they took this drug, um, I'm trying to find the name of the drug, they used this drug called Epirbacin. It's a chemotherapy drug, and they attached to a nanodiamond, mm-hmm. um, which is a carbon structure with a diameter about 5 nanometers, to develop a nanodiamond drug delivery complex. And they found that while both the standard chemotherapy drug as well as the one that is coupled to the diamonds were capable of killing normal cancer cells, only the ones coupled to the nanodiamonds were capable of killing chemo-resistant cancer stem cells, preventing secondary tumor formation. By the so way, that, don't buy a nanodiamond for your uh, future wife. She well, yeah, what the, I don't even know what the hell a nanodiamond is. <laughs> yeah. It's a really small diamond. <laughs> yeah, I, I must <laughs> I have so. no idea. But I guess they're good at killing uh, tumor cells. So that's cool, uh, repurposing a drug with the nanotechnology. This is in stem cell translational medicine, defined culture of human embryonic stem cells and xenofree derivation of RPE cells, or retinal pigment epithelium, on a novel synthetic substrate. The RPE is real hot. You know, it's putting it, you know, AMD, macadigen, it goes bad, so we can make new RPE and put it back, restore vision, or keep vision at bay so it doesn't get lost or go you go blind. So... Um, here they've created this kind of um, xeno-free um, kind of it's a xeno-free method of creating RPE from human embryonic stem cells. Uh, that's in stem cell translational medicine. Couple more here. Uh, this is a, this is a little uh, a kind of an article out of the Harvard 
Oxford Gazette, highlighting a paper by Lenzon's group in the journal Cell, and it's the imaging captures how blood blood stem cells take root. So you know, he, Len uses those zebrafish. Remember when he came yeah. on? He told he told us that story about that drug that that uh, that uh, zebrafish drug deal that he had. That he mm. had a someone drove him. Uh, uh, he had to pick up uh, like zebrafish <laughs> on the side on the of the side. road or something like that. Highway, yeah, uh, that was really funny. Check that out on a previous episode. That was a good story. So they they use the zebrafish because they're see through, and you can see how the blood um, is generated. And in cell. They described a, a dynamic system that offers several clues for improving bone marrow transplants in patients with cancer, severe immune deficiencies, and blood disorders. And they got some really, really amazing videos. I mean, you got to check this out. It's like they show how the cells are moving through. I mean, it's crazy. So we'll we'll put the link up, and you can check it out. It's really, really awesome. So that's right. uh, that was in cell. And finally, um, th- I thought this was interesting, epigenetic predisposition to reprogramming fates in somatic cells. So people are always trying to find out what makes the reprogramming process better. How do you add, when you add the four factors to a fibroblast or skin cell, what's determining whether or not the cell actually reprograms? And so <clears throat> they, they, they looked at epigenetics. And they actually show here, Yost, that they find that it's not really so much about cell cycle and how fast it's dividing. But they suggest that there's this, um, you know, it's an epigenetic, the epigenetic status of the cell really um, is what's important in allowing it to be reprogrammed by the factors. And they can manipulate that using, um, you know, polycomb inhibitors and things. And they can modulate the fraction of IPS forming lineages. So um, that was in uh, EMBO. So uh, we'll put that up there. So I think we should just stop here and uh, move to the next uh, portion of the show. Okay, Chris, why don't you bring on our guest? Okay, so our guest today is Christine Mumry. She's a, um, a professor and chair of development of biology at the um, Leiden University Medical Center. And Dr. Mumry's lab focuses on um, some really cool things, Joseph, as, as neural biologists that we are. It's always fun when we have someone uh, on who's not in the neural field to educate us and everybody out there. And her lab really lo- looks at using pluripotent cells and differentiating into cardiomyocytes and vascular cells. Um, and um, she's also doing a lot of uh, trying to develop cardiovascular disease models in mouse and humans using these cells. And she really, you know, pioneered some studies on heart muscle cells, these cardiomyocytes made from human embryonic stem cells, and was really one among the first to inject them into a mouse after a heart attack. And I'm excited to ask her about um, this field in the world of heart attack. I know a lot of our audience would like to understand how stem cells could be useful there. Um, in addition to running the lab, Dr. Mumry, ser- Dr. Mumry serves as the editor-in-chief of Stem Cell Reports, which is an open access journal published by Cell Press, and that is the official journal of the International Society for Stem Cell Research. So we will talk to her about that as well. Dr. Mumry, thank you so much for joining the show. How are you doing? Good. And it's a pleasure to be here. All right, great. So let's, before we, you know, get into all the topics, please just, you know, introduce yourself to the audience. L- you know, tell us a little bit about, in science, how, how you got into the world of, of stem cells, and, and then kind of we can transition into what the lab is focused on. Yeah, so I'm, it's quite a long history, really. I, I did my bachelor's degree in physics, actually, uh, with electronics, and my PhD I did in London in biophysics. And when I was studying biophysics, I ended up finding the cells more interesting than the, the actually the physics part and I moved to the Netherlands and there was a group there working on something called neuroblastoma 
And I thought this is a physicist was really fascinating that you could turn these cells into neurons and they became no longer malignant, but they also became electrically excitable. So um, I could kind of then use the electrophysiology and, and the physics I'd learned to characterize these cells. And later on, uh, my then group leader went to actually one of the first conferences on teratocarcinoma stem cells. So they were the spontaneous tumors of the testis and it used to be a killer in young men. And they were absolutely fascinating because they could differentiate not only into neurons, but all kinds of cell types. And it was actually the prelude to really understanding pluripotent stem cells. In the same year he went to that conference, um, the first mouse embryonic stem cells were derived. And it was clear that there was a normal counterpart to these cells. So he came back and he said, who would like to work on this? And I said, I would. So I just kind of jumped on the bandwagon. And I've been fascinated by embryonic stem cells ever since. And I also was interested um, in applications. So in those days, we thought you could cure this testis tumor, which is actually the tumor that Lance Armstrong had, for example, was cured of. Um, We thought you could cure it by differentiation. So they became non-malignant once they differentiated, just like the neuroblastoma. So we were working on, on, on actually differentiation as a therapy. And actually, it was one of the tumors that could be cured because differentiation wasn't the solution. It was um, cytostatic, so cisplatinum, that actually killed off the stem cells. So actually, our source of funding disappeared. Hmm. So that, you know, a cure of cancer was end of my career, apparently. <laughs> Um, So I thought, well, we have to do something else. Hmm. And by this time, I was completely fascinated by mouse embryonic stem cells and went into uh, growth factor signaling and looked at vascular genesis using embryonic stem cells really as a vehicle to introduce mutations into mice, like everybody uses them now. Um, And then in 1998, when the first human embryonic stem cells were isolated by uh, Jamie Thompson, I thought, aha, I can go back to doing these human cells. And a a good friend of mine at the time was uh, Martin Perra and Alan Transon, and they were in their group, Ben Rubinoff, uh, derived the second batch Mm -hmm. of human embryonic stem cells. And because of our old common interest in human embryonal carcinoma, which is the teratocarcinoma, carcinoma, uh, they were very kind and shared these cells with me. And this was back in 2000. And the very first experiment we did, they turned into cardiomyocytes. So um, I remember the day very well because it was actually Valentine's Day. Mm. My tech came running in and said, oh, we've got beating cells. We've got yeah. heart cells. <laughs> and, you know, so this was February 14th, 2001. And that's really what determines our subsequent uh, path. I think if they turn into neurons, we'd probably have gone the neuron <laughs> side. You know, serendipity gets you into these things. And uh, so I've combined, it, combined the sort of electrophysiology with, with making heart cells. And the original plan was to treat patients because it seemed to be a really simple problem. So somebody gets an infarct. They lose about 10 to the 9 cells. And we thought if, if we, you could replace these sort of numbers of cardiomyocytes, you might be able to repair the heart and prevent it going into heart failure. Um, and so we thought we'd test this in mice first. And the, the major problems would be getting enough cardiomyocytes and getting them, um, let's say, as pure populations. 
So we started doing these experiments in mice in about 2005, actually. Um, and of course, you give a, a regular mouse um, a, a myocardial infarction by pinching off a vessel, and then you start injecting. And the more we did, the more, more and more I realized this is not as easy as I thought. In principle, it's really easy. But to get the cells to integrate properly, to get enough of them in, um, I realized that the mouse wasn't the right model, and certainly not a, a healthy mouse. And by this time, there were loads of people doing this type of stuff. And, and actually, we were the first to say, hey, guys, this is really not as easy as it looks. And um, I remember uh, being in Harvard at the time and telling for the first time, look, we've got a lot of challenges here. These cells are not coupling properly to the host. They're not lining up. They're not all pulling together. Everybody's doing his own thing in the heart. And this is going to cause arrhythmias. This is going to really upset the heart, not cure it. Um, and there were a couple of people there. I was quite encouraged because in, in Harvard, they kind of like people being honest. And they said, this was real intellectual honesty to say it's not going to work. So I... Um, after you know, working on this, spending about 100,000 euros on mice and a lot of time, we stopped doing it. And I just um, really started reporting all the caveats and the problems. But I still thought making heart cells, human heart cells, must be useful for something. Um, and then started realizing that many drugs were not working well because they were having side effects on the human heart that were not being picked up in animal models. So then we moved away from actually using the heart cells as a cure into moving them into disease modeling. Um, and then uh, at the same time as in Harvard, of course, Shinya Yamanaka published the first papers and we got, you know, in, in, in Harvard, they were caught up in what we called its fever, IPS fever, sort of took off there. And I thought, oh, well, you know, that's how I go doing that. Um, and we could use all the protocols that we'd used to do, you know, and developed in human embryonic stem cells. They work perfectly in IPS cells. So then we have this whole repertoire then of IPS cells from patients with genetic cardiac diseases that we had no way of understanding what the mechanism was. And we could make these beautiful IPS-derived cardiomyocytes and we could look at the electrophysiology and actually use all the stuff we developed over very many years to study them. And I think we've, we've been able to get quite considerable insights into how and why um, drugs are toxic to human uh, cardiomyocytes and not necessarily to mouse, how uh, arrhythmias, so abnormal heart rhythm, occurs. In a, in a country like the Netherlands, for example, we have 16, 17 million people. There's a, a million with uh, heart arrhythmias. So you don't die of it, but it's very annoying. Mm. And we don't know why some drugs work and some don't. So we're trying to uh, figure that out. So and the, I think, oh, I'm sorry to cut you. These, these arrhythmias, these are, they are syndrome, syndromic arrhythmias? Like there's, a, there's genetic, um, you know, it's not just a, a random event. You're born when you have an arrhythmia. These are, uh, these are kind of Mendelian. These are genetic diseases that have arrhythmias. Is that, is that right? There's two, there's two sorts. So um, 
I mean, the philosophy is that by studying some of the rare genetic forms that sure. are familial and inherited, we're going to get inside into the sporadic forms. I mean, that's basically what we assume. And that's proving in some areas to be quite true. Mm-hmm. Um, look at you know, Kevin Egan's work on ALS sure. or some of the vascular diseases. So um, I think that's quite true. So we can still work on drugs. We're working on drugs that um, affect the ion channels and what is a genetic disease, in many cases, these are the, the ion channels that are going wrong in these sporadic forms, which are caused for different reasons. Um, and the other diseases we're looking at are, for example, heart failure. In humans, there's not a single drug in, in the pipeline for treating heart failure. And it's going to be, because everybody's aging, it's going to be millions of people getting heart failure. And by studying the genetic forms of heart failure, we're looking at ways that we can improve the way sarcomeres contract. And then we go back to sort of biomechanics and we need to be able to measure force of contraction in small numbers of cells and to be able to screen either in sort of using gene therapy approaches or small molecules, siRNA libraries, to sort of screen for all these different compounds. But first you need a model. And secondly, you need an accurate readout um, so that's what we work on, and we use, you know, really biophysics to try and develop these models. Um, and, and the same is true of the of the vasculature. So, you know, we can make from this all the cells we make are mesoderm lineage cells. So, you, from the heart, you can get, uh, of course, heart cells. But there's also vasculature that you make sure. on the way, and use all the different tricks to make vasculature. And again, we're putting these in in 2D, but mostly in 3D microfluidics devices um, where we can actually make tubes of vasculature. And we can study things like the interaction between pericytes, which is, you know, the sort of uh, stromal cells, and the endothelial cells. It's the causes of many types of hemorrhage. It's related to vascular dementia. So not all forms of dementia are caused by effects on neurons. So there's a, a wealth of diseases in which the vascular is defective. Talk about the vasculature for a second. You know, when we think, at least when I think of vasculature, I'm thinking uh, vein, arteries, things like this. And is there there a clear, I want to use the word differentiation, but I don't want to confuse it in the context of stem cells. Um, That's where I'm going. Is there a clear delineation of the two in the dish currently? What's the state of that, creating both? Is there good markers? Are you able to distinguish uh, either? Uh, does it matter in the case of just creating a vat? I mean, in, in the dish in a model, obviously it matters in vivo, but, but what's, what's, the, what's, the, what's the state of that? Yeah, so, so I can say what our ambition is. We would like to make all the endothelial cells of the body. So not only capillaries, arteries, and veins, but also fenestrated, brain, uh, sure. all, all different tissues, and distinguish arterial and venous, and we can make um, embryonic forms, but basically you have to follow development. So you, some endothelial cells, for example, in the embryo are formed in the yolk sac, right? So they're different from the ones that are formed from cardiac progenitors. So they go in a stepwise uh, way through different stages of markers. It's a question of timing. It's a question of the growth factors. You add or take away signaling you block and by diff- using different c- concentrations and combinations we can we're beginning to be able to distinguish the different subtypes and although we don't really know whether that's essential and say in our disease m- modeling um, intuitively you'd like to have the right endothelial cells and 
the right smooth muscle cells to go with it because you know from development we know of at least well probably seven different developmental origins of smooth muscle they can be neural crests they can be all kinds of origins so we're trying really very accurately to get the right combination for each disease and then um, of course add in so many many diseases are caused by inflammatory responses in the vasculature system so we can add in you know vascular cells we can add in disease vascular cells or molecules so in various combinations but the clue is always a deep understanding of development uh, and which steps the cells go through so it's you know sort of general philosophy in stem cell research you know you try to biomimic what happens in the embryo whether it's for neurons or blood cells whatever yeah on the flip side of that i guess i would ask uh in terms of uh the nervous system the innervation coming from uh neurons in the brain uh how how does that like in terms of disease modeling or even therapy like uh i've seen some of these videos where they have scaffolding of the heart hollowed out and then they seed them with uh, cardiomyocytes, and I'm just wondering, how do you replace a heart, the innervation coming from the nervous system? How's how's that going to integrate? Uh, and, and also speaking to your disease modeling in a dish, how how integral is that nervous system connection? I guess, is yeah. So I mean, it's a very good question. We haven't, re- you know, nobody's really started that systematically yet at all. Mm. Of course, we know. Um, nerves and the vasculature are very uh, related during development but there's very few people doing co-conscious between let's say cells of the nervous system and cells of the vasculature or the heart but those are certainly things we're going to do Um, for example the heart the endocardium which is a sort of endothelial cell is really important in determining how the underlying myocardium reacts we need the epicardium on the outside if if the epicardium which is sort of the outer epithelial layer of the heart doesn't form properly then the myocardium goes wrong as well you don't get all these sort of little uh we call them trabeculations in the heart they don't form Mm. so it's really important to have the right combination and that's why sort of tissue engineers are really along the right track in in trying to provide scaffolds where you put in the cells so this sort of 3D printing ideas to put in different types of cells in combination, the closer we can get to building real human tissues with the appropriate readouts because we need um, maybe nanomarkers as readouts, we need uh, genetic markers, fluorescent markers, maybe we can even do it with metabolomics in different combinations. So I always say there's room for every discipline in stem cell research because you need to measure stuff need to get the right cells in and you need to put them in the right right kind of context so recreating niches is you know sort of where things are really tell me uh just a little bit uh from i'm thinking from perspective of our audience and maybe maybe the audience uh, a lot you know many of our audience is not necessarily scientists and they're thinking of it in terms of uh, just health questions and so when, when they think of heart they think of heart attacks i mean a lot of them that's what they're thinking and so uh, you know what i'm thinking of is and how when you have an infarction so when there is an event right and there's an infarction or, or, or to everyone you know I'm, that's really kind of like a heart attack and you have muscle damage how is what's the timing event there is so what's what's the philosophy in the field is that muscle the muscle is gone it, it can be saved it doesn't matter if it dies i mean i know the the theory was you would create these new uh, heart cells transplant them back in make the heart stronger being able to pump is there is there a timing that's critical like i know in the brain with 
with stroke, that you know, it's all about timing. Can can you speak to that just a little bit uh, in, in terms of having the event, and then if there is going to be some sort of you know, intervention, whether that be uh, a drug that could help strengthen the muscle or, or some sort of transplant. It, what, what, is it, what is the thought in the field about the timing of the event and the intervention? Yeah, so, so what we've learned um, from our mouse studies, and many have learned this, is it's not an instantaneous thing. So you cut off the oxygen supply and, you know, the, the cardiomyocytes are hit. But there's a whole cascade of stuff that happens during the subsequent weeks where over that period the cells die so heart function starts to go down but it's not really in a mouse right down at the bottom till after about four weeks and in humans it's also decreasing so this is the sort of window opportunity to rescue stuff so can you prevent the you know block the apoptosis of the heart cells can you prevent them dying if you can save them in some way by understanding more about that process then maybe you won't lose as many and there'll be less reason for the heart to sort of start overworking and go in heart failure. So we did have some effects by injecting cells and there are some effects reported for you know putting in bone marrow stromal cells in the heart and any of these would probably be mediated uh, by ameliorating the damage, so preventing the damage. Once the scar tissues replace the dead cardiomyocytes, you're in deep trouble. So even putting in the cardiomyocytes at that stage, you've still got to get rid of all this scar tissue, okay. which is, you know, it's it's creating problems. So the window of opportunity is pretty quick after an infarct. And if you're looking at, let's say, something that's not been caused by an infarct, but say high blood pressure, heart failure, this kind of thing, it's quite hard to imagine how you're going to, by putting in some heart cells, actually fix it. You can hear right. That's okay. It's timely. We were talking about in, we were talking about infarcts, heart. and we hear the sirens in the back. <laughs> sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Um, so that's quite hard, and the heart actually changes shape. So um, it's when you a normal heart looks like a rugby ball, but when it's gone into heart failure, it goes to looking like a soccer ball. So by putting in heart cells, it's never going to go back to be like a rugby ball. So it's always going to be inefficient. So. I think the window of opportunity is quite early on after an infarct or when heart failure is in a very early stage. Uh, so I would be optimistic there's something to do in that period. After it's happened, it's going to be tough. Um, at most, we can perhaps find drugs that increase the contraction of the heart, and which is why we like looking at these genetic models based on IPS cells of heart failure, because if we can... Uh, find any way of making the force of contraction, even with uh, you know a fairly deformed cardiomyocyte, be bigger. We'll we will have a treatment for heart right. failure. Okay. And I have a question sense. about the differentiation. Uh, so when you take human stem cells and try to make heart tissue, I've I've actually seen it before in the dish, and it's very shocking when you see these cells all contracting all at once and mine was by accident i just had a small part of the dish that had these uh cardiomyocytes so when you make this happen presumably it's a lot more efficient than the accidental tissue i got but uh just uh, can you talk about the markers is it just the whole dish is contracting you have a 10 centimeter dish sort of moving in the incubator or how, how right. well, in the beginning you know um 
people didn't know what to expect and you looked in the microscope and you could just see it about moving yeah. and then we were happy but now we can get whole sheets of these things so we do we used to have to make aggregates so embryoid bodies mm-hmm. um, but now you can do it in monolayer without any sort of feeder cells in defined conditions you get these whole sheets moving it's totally amazing you can almost get seasick on it because <laughs> you see these waves of, of you know contractions going cross synchronously across the dish and it can be quite a big dish it can be you know like a six centimeter or you know even mm. a bigger 12 centimeter dish where mm. you see this this gold wave going over it it's fantastic wow. so i still call them my fundraising films because you know really sits up and <laughs> yeah. they say, wow. everybody loves to see the beating cells in the dish <laughs> yeah. and that's that's but, you know it's, the, the sort of diehard stem cell scientists say like you're going to show the beating cells again are you <laughs> You, do, you, do, you say, yes, I am. Actually, I'm going to keep showing the beauty. So, I mean, it's amazing. It truly is amazing. Even to me, seeing it still, it's amazing. It's amazing that you can see uh, those cells uh, actually being active. Because when you look at cells in a dish, they're beautiful to look at, but they just look back at you, you know. But anytime you yeah. can see some sort of activity, I know with neurons or now calcium imaging, you know, with calcium, where you can see something happening, yeah. physiological response is really amazing. And for everyone in the audience who hasn't seen uh, these videos, you can find them online. I mean, I'm sure nowadays you can look up cardiomyocytes beating in a dish or something, and you should take a look because it's very, they're very, very cool to see. So, so we can even get them uh, working with uh, lights now. So we put these optogenetic constructs in them, and you have a little LED light, and you shine these LED lights on the cells, and they'll flash out and they'll they'll beat according to the to the rhythm of the the wow. light. We- in. So the idea of making you know biological pacemakers mm. in this way, you know, with little tiny um, glass fiber tubes and a tiny tiny battery is is not you know that ridiculous anymore. Um, so when you see it in a dish, you know, it's really fantastic. Yeah. Uh, what are the markers for mature cardiomyocytes? I, I saw you had this dual reporter paper with uh, I guess NKX two point five. That's one of the earlier mesoderm yeah. markers. Yeah. 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 Uh and then what's a mature uh, cardiomyocyte profile like uh what what genes do they express is is it like fat where you have myod expression and boom you get fat tissue or is there a master regulator gene or uh, it's unfortunately not it's no? it's a real tough question that um because all stem cell derivatives are immature so um you know we we can go from about, let's say, the equivalent of week 12 of human gestation and we get up to week 20. But there are no way adult cells are too small. They're not properly, uh, you know, we can get some organization of the sarcomeres. So some of it is physical, functional. So let's say what, something called the, ac- the action potential, for example, that's very determinant of, of the, um, how, the activity. So we can get close to adult electrical activity in some ways, but we can never get something that we call T-tubules. These are essential for adult cells um, to behave properly in terms of calcium handling and the like. And they only develop postnatally, and we're nowhere near mm, doing that. Yeah. So, um, you know, every type of condition we develop we try to look at maturity, and there are a bunch of markers uh, for those, so different types of myosin heavy chain and things like this. Um, we think they're more mature if we put them in 3D constructs in the right sort of uh, niche, so right sort of matrix. Um, we think they're more mature if you give them, instead of glucose, you give them fatty acids, or if mm-hmm. you add certain hormones, T3 hormone, for example, mm-hmm. expressed postnatally or late, late uh, fetal, give them this stuff 
and they're, they get a bit better, mm-hmm. but mature cardiomyocytes we don't have. I see. So I, I think what we'll do now is let's let's take the uh, lab hat off and put the um, editor hat on. I, re- I want to talk in the little, last little bit about um, stem cell reports, um, which is the you know the official journal of ISSCR that you're the editor in chief. So just tell me you know before you know I I, I like to t- there's a lot of young scientists listening and, and we you know we all always talk about you know we have different some someone that does something different than science we we tend to talk a little bit about it as a career but before we go into that tell me how the journal's doing i know it's a relatively new journal and tell tell us a little bit about the idea behind launching this and and how it's going so far yeah so um Many of us, uh, you know, as senior stem cell scientists are very frustrated in seeing our own papers sometimes, but also that of our juniors, that, are, you know, are really quite good ideas and good basic science, but the, the bar has been set so incredibly high by the top journals, uh, it's really hard for them to get in. So, you know, the good first solid study of any some anything new is sometimes really hard to publish because they come back to you and you know they say that they have quick review processes but sometimes people are you know have to go through three rounds of revision and a year passes by and this is deadly for some young careers who don't have that amount of time so we felt um, that some of the more unusual types of papers uh, a single message paper, a short report, I found this, I've done the right controls, the right statistics. Um, you could take it as an, as an IPS as an example. I've done three different patients, I've got three clones of each, I've differentiated the cell type and I see a phenotype. But has it given me new insights into the disease? Perhaps not yet, but still I think that cell line should be out there with what I have. And so those are the kind of things we consider. And we've had really nice papers. So the board of ISSER are all editorial board members, and they've been extremely supportive in sending nice papers to the journal. So it's had a great start. Um, We've had a lot of um, take-up and and a lot of people picking it up on the media. Um, So we've had quite a lot of media exposure of some of our papers. And what's really nice is uh, because we're all scientists, in the stem cell field, we know, we think we know what's good and what isn't good. We try to put down fables. We try to, you know, if you go to a lot of meetings, people know the, the stories that are true or not true. They know where the controver- controversies are. Um, and we will even publish well, um, let's say, well-reproduced, failure-to-reproduce papers. Um, so if we think something is perhaps wrong... Uh, and somebody says, look, I've done all these experiments, I know why it's wrong, uh, and can show it. We've published a few papers like this. So it's really important to have this second type of paper that either proves or disproves something else. Um, so we've had um, really great papers already. It's it's meant for, let's say, the, the middle segment. We have the ambition to be at, say, uh, at the EMBO journal level, the cell reports level. Um, which will um, give us a good chance of being very successful. And the funny thing is, um, as an editor, you know, you have to tell some people their paper's not up to it. Um, but because we've done it as scientists, people actually thank me for rejection sometimes. It's wow. totally amazing. <laughs> um, because they said, I'm really glad you suggested this, and we're going to do it, you know. Um, and 
we don't allow impolite or unprofessional criticism of papers. So we think in sometimes we've helped papers really get through for younger people. Um, if you do this, but you don't have to do that, then we find it robust enough. Um, so they've been really keen. So well, that's important. Imp- sorry, that's important, as especially as a younger scientist. I mean, Joseph, you know this too. I mean, it's. You know, when I, I always say now having my own lab, you, you know, you go out there, it's like you're on your own. You're, I like the equivalent, you're a first-time new parent, and you go to submit your paper as the first time after you've been in these labs, and your name is now. You know, I feel like it could be very deflating when you send, not, not to get rejected, because part of the business in the world of science is that, you know, it's, you know, you're going you're gonna to fail in quotes more than you're going to succeed. But it doesn't have to, the way it's done doesn't have to be so awful sometimes. I mean, I've gotten right. reviews back that are just terrible. And, you know, these are, these are graduate students doing the work and these are young kids. And, you know, it's just awful sometimes the way they're they're structured they're written and it's it, it you know so I, I i like to hear you say that because it's it's one thing to offer criticism and offer suggestions it's another to make the people writing the paper feel like their 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 work is just just not good at all and so you know that i'm glad that you brought that point up because there's there's a way there's a way in in displaying criticism i feel that that that's positive Right, and we strongly believe that, that, that it's constructive criticism that helps people get along. And all of our editors are, so we have um, four associate editors and myself as editor-in-chief and a managing editor. And we all believe that, that constructive criticism can help. And in fact, um, formally we have a three-month deadline, like most journals, for submitting a revision. But we sometimes have them come back between six and nine months later, done properly. And people say, oh, I can't make the three-month deadline. I said, don't worry about it. We'd rather have it back right than publish it prematurely, you know, in the wrong kind of way. So we're quite flexible um, about that. And, uh, you know, we've had some really nice papers come back over quite a long time. And we also have something which actually I learned from the Embo journals is we call scoop protection. So when a paper's with us, um, and under review, we won't reject it if you know somebody else publishes the same thing. Oh, nice! Oh, that's believe- nice. So we don't get that disclaimer that you know the novelty is based at the t- up to the time of publication. You exactly. Know? Yeah. yeah, and we yeah, should explain we what paper number two is really important because stem cell research, to be honest, isn't that robust. Um, and uh, you know, we'd rather see a second paper showing exactly the same right. thing. And then you think, hey, this is true. That's exactly right. I thought, I, and I so, agree. so why is Shin, Shinya's work so fantastic? It's because every lab in the world can do it. Exactly. Right? Yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, so everybody, um, you can, if you haven't already, go check out Stem Cell Reports. We talk about it a lot on the show. We, we pull a lot of papers from there. There's really good, there's really great content that's coming out frequently with good papers. Um, it's cell.com backslash stem cell reports with hyphens. But if you just Google stem cell reports, reports um you can find it you know we're, we're running out of time so for the past two minutes I, we want to just ask you this question you're you're someone who's been in this field from the beginning you've seen how it's how it's gone how it's progressed you've actually seen it from the side of a scientist from the side of publication um someone who's you, you know you know really knowledgeable of this field so tell us your opinion you've you watched it progress you see how it's growing where we we like to ask where do you see um for the people out there where do you see uh, um the kind of 
closest to the finish line. Is there one that you think is running in terms of therapeutic? You think there's one running ahead, or do you think we're just all in moving forward? I mean, give, give us your opinion on that in the field and in terms of the, you know the clinic where we are. I think uh, probably everybody's saying the same thing, but the eye is clearly a long way ahead. It has all ticks in the right boxes. Um, I think the Parkinson is promising. I love Lawrence Studer's work, and I think he's as close as anybody to going into the clinic with that. And I really believe that he's got some of the issues solved. And I think the diabetes issue for people with, with you know, chronic diabetes, severe diabetes, I think that is very promising. So I would say for the pluripotent stem cells, that's where that's going. The adult stem cells are now coming into their own. Um, I think the liver... Um, some of the le- recent liver progenitor, liver stem cell work from Hans Claver's group is great. Maybe we'll even get some of the intestinal cells bringing us new linings to the colon or something mm. like that. So some of those adult stem cells, particularly for the endodermal organs, which are more difficult in many ways um, for pluripotent stem cells, I think those areas are, are, you know, are really moving ahead where the, the cells themselves are going to be the therapy that's aside from right. the other things where you know they're going to be using the platform excellent well thanks for that uh from your words you know hopefully to the clinic uh we'll get those out there so uh thanks for highlighting those um and coming aboard and uh sharing with us your work and uh the whole editorial process uh, we really appreciate you coming on the show thanks a lot for asking me no problem have a good day thanks again bye. talk soon bye right, take care Okay, so there you have it. Cardiac, man. Yeah. This it's very, very cool. I've always found it fascinating, um, you know, looking at the heart cells beat, just to see where the state is. I, it's, it's interesting that she said she was moving, they moved away from, you know, putting the cells back in as a model. I thought that was really where it's at, but, you know, I can understand that that's got a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, walls, if you will, to hurdles. Yeah, um, yeah. But it, uh, you've you've probably seen them in the dish. I For me, that was the first time I had a you know, Frankenstein, Dr. Frankenstein sort of, it's a live moment when you see something like that in a dish, you feel like you're making something that's just sort of, it's almost paranormal when you see them beating it in front of you. It it does, it's, it's a lot different than the neurons. I'll it's a lot that. different. Yeah. It's yeah. cool, man. It's very cool. It is kind of, uh, it's Jack, a, like freaky Frankenstein-y. It's kind of, <laughs> yeah. Freaky but, uh, Frankenstein. All right. Yeah. We're going to rant. Uh, so, I guess this is our, our timely rant. Uh, yesterday, I wasn't able to go into the lab because of this large, massive nor'easter snowstorm that was supposed to paralyze everything and all science and all business in the area. And um, I guess we're going to rant at what a dud this storm wah, wah. T- turned out to be. Uh, all the all the mass transportation was closed i actually now have food in my fridge which i never have because (laughs) (laughs) i had to prepare for you know the blackout and the loss everything just not being able to get food uh so i don't i I guess we're gonna rant about false alarms we're gonna rant about it. it's ridiculous man i mean look boston i know you guys if you're listening in there i know you're like i don't know what the hell you guys are talking about we're under four feet of snow yeah but you know these 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 weather reporters he's what are they meteorologists yes i don't understand why they can't just say something to the effect of look we don't know all right we don't know it could be bad it could be up to here but you know we don't really know instead of coming on and saying like you're gonna die everybody needs to hunger you know i mean they 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 just make this 
so dire. You know, the mayor of New York City, this is one of the worst storms in the history of New York City. Every, and, and then it turns out to be like six inches of snow. Yeah. Um, do you think this is some sort of conspiracy, Yost, to get the uh, no, everyone out I, and shopping know, or something like that? WMYC brought on a meteorologist to dis- it dis- explain how something like this can happen where they predict two feet and we get like eight inches. And they were saying it's basically the difference of 30 miles where you have uh, the eye of the storm, if you will, being off by 30 miles. That's the difference between New York City getting hit and all of eastern Long Island. So it's, you know, when you have that sort of a small window, relatively small window, it could uh, really throw off the predictions of two feet versus eight inches, which, you know, in terms of infrastructure is a big deal when you're talking about Manhattan and and the other boroughs of New York City. So Yeah, sure, that's fine. So then why why be so definitive about what you're forecasting? If it if it's if it's so up to change, then why are you definitively calling for a blizzard, you know? I mean, yeah. I, that's that's what I don't understand. Yeah, they got it's like uh I guess uh you know homeland security you you want to be uh, air on the side of caution and have everybody take off their shoes at the airport even though there's very little chance of you know anything like that happening so I guess they err on the side of caution and they they give you the dire warning of 2 feet even though you know there's an equally good chance you're only going to get a 8 inches so I don't know it's a little frustrating uh when it doesn't pan out and uh, I, I feel like everybody feels gypped. But it was nice as an adult to have, like, it felt like a snow like a day. snow day? Yeah. Like an adult <laughs> snow day? I went in. Up here, we didn't really get a lot. And then the, actually Tuesday, we got it worse. You know, I was... I'm just thinking, though, like these meteorologists, man, they got it really made. They get paid to make predictions that most of the time don't pan out. And then when it doesn't pan out, we rant about it. And then we tune in tomorrow to find out what the weather is going to be like. You know, if science worked that way, if I got paid and was lauded for um, making scientific predictions and discoveries that just ended up not being correct, but nobody cared and just kept reading about my work. I mean, this would be a different industry, right? Yeah. It's like baseball. Baseball players, if you're batting three, 300, you're an awesome baseball player. But that means that you're, you know, the other two-thirds of the time, you're not hitting the ball. Yeah. You know, it's like it's one of these professions where, you know, you just take the risk and nobody cares. Uh, we complain about it, but... Well, this you know, meteorologist was saying this is the only field where the scientists predict a new theory every day about a storm. You know, there are always every day is a new theory. Every it's a prediction, it's a hypothesis on a daily basis, essentially. So, I guess we we're left with this this field, even though it seems like you know I could now look at Doppler on my phone. We're in a age where you could do that, but at the same time, we're left to the whimsical, you know randomness of a storm so where it decides to land i guess so uh that's that's where we'll leave it and uh that's our ram we're sticking with it right yeah we're gonna stick (laughs) with it anyway man good show we'll see you on 38 talk to you soon man all right talk to you later